0: Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of The Publisher Lab. I'm Tyler Bishop, joined, as always, Shelby Kang, the newly graduated from university Shelby Kang.
1: Yes, by the time you listen to this podcast, I should be all done with my finals. But as we record this, I am still in finals week, so a little bit tired, but happy to be here and happy to put on another episode.
0: So as you kind of like closed the door on your, um, uh, I guess for the time being, at least your college career, uh, what was your biggest takeaway from uh, just the sort of things that you've learned, um, I guess more so like as it relates to marketing, media, some of the things that you, you know, kind of specialized in?
1: Mm, to be quite honest, I've learned a lot more about marketing and media working here than I have in in four years of of schooling, it feels like. Um, But I just didn't know how complex marketing was before I first started. Um, I guess I didn't even really know there was much difference between marketing and sales before I first started. Um, So that was interesting. And I think probably one of the most interesting things for me was how many different ways you can market to people. Um, So it's just a lot bigger and a lot more diverse than I originally thought.
0: And so in that same time period, you know, I know you've been working on this podcast and been in the publishing space here now for coming up on a year. And so uh, I guess probably in the last year or so, what is probably the the biggest revelation you've had uh, about digital publishing?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think the biggest revelation I had is that no one really knows, (laughs) and I hate to say this, but... um, no one really knows what they're doing. And I'm not saying like, oh, people are, are bad at it, but there's just a lot to learn about digital publishing and just publishing in general. And I feel like even big brands before I started working here, I'm like, oh, the Wall Street Journal knows everything or or whatever it is about publishing and things like that. But I mean, we're all in the same boat is what I learned, I think.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I had a similar conversation with somebody else here soon. They were. We, we were discussing, and I won't go into detail for political reasons, but we were discussing uh, President Donald Trump. And um, he, his point to me was, he was like, it doesn't really matter who the president is because no one can be an expert in everything. You can't be an expert in the military and the economy and all these other types of things. So his point being essentially on the topic was that it's it's really hard to be in a role where you're expected to be good at everything and then also know everything. And I think, you know, you you nailed it, which is like in this industry, there's really nobody that like can see everything and know everything because it touches such a broad spectrum of businesses and industries and people. Um, So, yeah, it's it's really fascinating just to kind of uh, expose, I guess, to a certain extent that everybody can – you know if they're being honest, I think probably has to say we're all still figuring this out
1: mm-hmm. uh, I think I said this in the interview or my interview for this job, but I feel like it applies here and it's just fake it till you make it
0: yep it's true <laughs> and I think that uh that's that's just the acting principle I think of of most of us in this space where um in a lot of in a lot of regards, the paths or the strategies or the directions that we had, whether you're the Wall Street Journal deciding that you're gonna put. A large portion of your business into Apple News, or you're the New York Times saying we're going to be, you know, focusing on subscriptions, or you're someone like BuzzFeed that says after years of saying we're not going to do programmatic, we're going to do programmatic, and these are just monetization methods, right? But in all these different cases, these are publishers with very different ideas of what they think is the right way forward for their organization, and they they all serve the same audience. I mean, BuzzFeed's news. Uh, New York Times is news, Wall Street Journal is news. All three of them see the you know, like their future completely differently.
1: Right. Um speaking of the future, the first thing I wanted to start off with today is um something that you had in our Five Bullet Friday. So it's an article from Digiday about how publishers are preparing for the anti-tracking dominant future. So a while back, we talked about how Apple is making some anti-ad tracking changes. Um, And it looks like Google might be getting in the mix too, although they haven't actually publicly confirmed this. Um, But I know you touched on a little bit the implications of what happens if Apple does this, but can you kind of speak to what happens if Google decides to make the shift?
0: Yeah, so uh, Google is uh, giving users in Chrome uh, greater transparency into what data is being collected and allowing them to delete the information. So uh, imagine now, you know, when someone clears their cookies, you know, they essentially, you lose that ability to track them on a certain page if you're an advertiser. Uh, Now imagine that Google inside of Chrome is like almost pushing that. For someone to be able to see that and, and get rid of that information quickly or does that for them potentially. So, we talked about this before with with Apple. And ultimately, if you look at the trends in digital ad spend, digital ad spending is, it continues to trend upwards um, year over year. We're seeing more and more of it. It's not, that's not going in another direction. I think we can all agree like people are not going to pull their money out of digital and go back to television or newspaper or print or something like that. Um, so the money is still going to be here in this space. If you're a publisher, that's great news because guess what? You have lots of digital inventory. Um, what's more is your inventory becomes a lot more valuable when all of a sudden, um, advertisers basically lose one of their main tools, which is to be able to retarget someone. Um, if retargeting all of a sudden loses a lot of its, uh, ability to, or effectiveness because of the fact that, you know cookie tracking becomes more and more difficult then you have to basically say like okay well how else can i target an audience right well if you have a website all about apple products right if you're an advertiser that you know that's maybe your samsung and you want to try to convert people that are using apple products or you are one of the billions of companies out there that makes you know, services or products that integrate with Apple phones or, you know...
1: Accessories or...
0: Exactly. And what that does it puts you all of a sudden in a much more valuable position. And um, I don't think that changes it programmatically at all necessarily either. But um, I think it's good for publishers. It's going to make it hard on advertisers and marketers. I've seen uh, here recently a lot of uh, large brands mentioned they're like laying off members of their team and things like that, which I I don't see the... The logic in that necessarily, I think you almost need people more, but either way, I don't see the, the, this is a bad thing for publishers. I just think the entire market will have to adapt. There'll be new things that pop up because of this too, that we don't see yet, but I don't see that as being a challenge that we're not going to be able to essentially get in front of.
1: Right. Um, The next thing I wanted to talk about today is how Parents Magazine appeals to millennial parents. So, millennial parents, also nicknamed as perennials, (laughs) um, has an audience that consists of over 70 million people in the U.S. alone, so that's growing every day. Um, So, Parents Magazine is also keeping a close eye on Gen Z moms because they're also starting to enter the parenting space. Which is kind of weird to think about. Um, so, perennials are different than young parents of past generations, and Parents Magazine has outlined some insights from this audience that I thought I would share. So, perennials want their homes to be cozy retreats from the world, so, Parents Magazines make sure to focus their home content on cleaning and decluttering. Perennials also want quote-unquote woke brands, (laughs) Um, meaning the content must reflect the multicultural landscape of America. And perennials and technology are pretty much attached at the hip. That's no surprise. Millennial parents are using phones, apps, and even voice-activated devices like Alexa. So Parents Magazine is making sure that their content is available on these platforms. So I just thought that was a good example of, you know, a digital publisher that really knows their audience and caters to them. And I think it's a different way to kind of group your audience a little bit. I even like how they made up a little nickname. I thought that was fun.
0: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's a really great way of, you know, something we talk about a lot is like knowing your audience, right? Well, what's your thoughts on like kind of this, um, I, I guess, the the Z, millennial being able to kind of like identify you know, aspects of what these uh, different kind of classifications, what their values are. Uh, and like, so I've, I've seen recently a lot of people, specifically marketers, giving a hard time to this idea of like, oh, well, you just group all millennials or all Gen Z or all uh, Gen Xers. They're all just grouped together and they're not all one thing. Um, but there are clear differences between these things, right? We can agree that, you know, the way that they even consume content we've talked about with stores before, that's different. I don't know. What's your take on it?
1: Uh, I feel like I have a different take from a marketer standpoint and from like a personal standpoint. I mean, from a marketer standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to, you know, segment these people into, okay, they're from the same cohort. They probably think the same, behave the same. But from a personal standpoint, I hate being boxed in as a millennial. So um, that's kind of where I stand. I think there is value in, you know, millennials as much as I hate to admit it. They are pretty alike in a lot of ways. Um, so that's kind of where I am.
0: So I think my, my opinion on it is, um, it's, it's not unique, I don't think, but I do think that you start to see these cultural waves. So the way that the culture shifts in general, and the generation just happens to be kind of like the reflection of that, the ones that embody those kind of shifts the most. Um, and so I, I think you do start to see things like what we described with parent magazine, like how people view their homes or, 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 uh, the, you know, the quote unquote, want to work with woke brands, the, I think being able to understand your audience, um, and basically, what what's important to them understand their values is is really good because you know thinking thinking of it like a marketer and uh, how I think a publisher should probably think about it is if you understand what your audience values, you can better predict what types of topics or what types of slants on topics are going to be the most appealing to them. So, when you know that your audience is a let's say let's look at it in reverse like a baby boomer type of audience, um, you know some of the kind of takes that are more modern or um, you know, maybe even on ideas that are, uh, maybe more forward thinking or something like that that might not be as appealing to them, you know, and it may even like isolate you from them in some ways in the same way that, you know, having, I guess, quote unquote, non woke brands would make, you know, kind of isolate you away from your, your audience. But, whenever you are able to find ways to connect to them it kind of endears you to them and i think that is how you try to build some type of brand and i think if you're a publisher today it's really really hard to say you know it's, there's few brands that are out there but i like to think that there are these things like micro brands where um you may not have this huge like wall street journal style brand but if 10% of your audience is loyal and they know who you are and they follow it and they come to you directly, then that is valuable in of itself um, for the reasons we were talking about earlier and the shifts in privacy and you know, brands wanting to work with uh, sites and publishers directly. But even beyond that, just your ability to build an audience grows whenever you have a real identity.
1: Right. Um, so you mentioned brands. The next thing I want to talk about is how um, Pinterest has come up on top at being the best brand to emotionally connect with users. So these findings come from the Brand Intimacy 2019 study, um, which looks at brand relationships of apps and social platforms. So the study consisted of 6,200 people from ages 18 to 64 in the US, Mexico, and the UAE,
0: Weird choices.
1: Really weird choice of countries. I don't know if those are just the people who decided to respond to this survey or if they intentionally chose those three countries, but I can't imagine why they would choose those three. So, Pinterest was the top brand in the category among women, millennials, users over 35, and also across both income categories. So, the agency that helped conduct this study says that this demonstrates a willingness by people to trust the Pinterest. Pinterest brand, and they also speculate that these factors may include interactions on the platform being less likely to lead to divisive communications, as in, I mean, I don't know about you, but how many people have probably gotten into, like, Facebook arguments with your aunt's random coworker?
0: (laughs) Not a lot of arguments happen on Pinterest.
1: (laughs) And then also due to the fact that Pinterest isn't having as many controversial issues like Facebook. Um, It also shows that Pinterest is not only expanding its audience, but it's also deepening it. So this is pretty rare among social platforms since most of them appeal to everybody and they end up sacrificing that emotional closeness with users. So the other platforms that were on top, or at least in the top five, were Spotify, Pandora, Instagram, and Apple Music um, in that respective order. But I just thought that was interesting. I know that um, we have some publishers that use Pinterest and don't really know how to use it at the same time or or why they're successful on it, Um, but yeah, there's that.
0: It's interesting, uh, you know, Pinterest is often the forgotten platform. I always refer to it as that because, like you said, what I, I know publishers that get a lot of traffic from Pinterest and when you kind of press them on it, they're like, yeah, I, I'm not really 100% sure how that's happening or what we're doing well, but it seems to be working. And uh, I think partially it's because it's um, it's a lot more um, specific in some ways, meaning um you know instagram is very like very open meaning um anybody in the world could be on instagram for any number of reasons same thing with facebook twitter um spotify and pandora to a certain extent like anyone could want to use that platform right pinterest though however has a more specific purpose so um it and it's the ability to basically like pin ideas Graphics, visuals, that kind of stuff. So there is that little bit of like Instagram vibe to it, but the social interaction actually is very, is a lot lesser on there, meaning like direct communication. It's more about sharing than it is about communicating. And I think that when you're, if your criteria for, you know, like brand integrity or, you know, brand trust or something like that, of course, I mean, like there's very little controversy. Pinterest isn't getting hammered in the news about privacy and sharing data although i'm sure like if you want to peel back the layers of the onion there there's some of that going on um uh so they're not very controversial that way they're not spreading fake news you know so they they have a very benign feel to them um because of that and uh i i i think you know listening to jack dorsey who's kind of been on a little bit of a tour recently with uh twitter i think trying to avoid regulation they um they they keep talking about like keeping the conversation open and having, you know, like um you know not closing off the debates and uh all this kind of stuff. And I think one of the things you learn is that um all these platforms have a similar problem in that things that make people angry or things that uh, people are passionate about, let's say, rather than even angry, um, these are the things that make people want to engage and use a platform more. And so there's that hard question of, are these meaningful interactions? Are these interactions good for people? Are they bad for people? but either way, they're the reason why those platforms are popular. Pinterest, far less popular than Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So um, I guess from if you were to pick one, which one is the safest brand, it's Pinterest, but if you were to pick which one you know is the most relevant. Um, in a lot of ways, I think Instagram is going to be far more relevant.
1: Yeah. I recently saw a headline about how, um, traffic from Instagram is increased, um, website traffic, just referrals from Instagram have really skyrocketed recently, but, um, didn't really look into into it, but I saw that headline.
0: I've read that Instagram is exploring new ways for publishers to be able to send traffic to their sites. Right now, the classic uh, link in bio that a lot of people mm-hmm. do, they'll post something and they'll say link in bio where you can go to the person's profile page where there's the one opportunity to put a link. And people will put either like a link tree link where you can link out to a page full of link, links to other articles so you don't have to just like constantly replace that one. Or just you know link to whatever it is you put in there. Uh, Instagram has started penalizing the reach of posts that say link in bio. Wow, I
1: didn't it, know that
0: because they don't want people to basically abuse that feature. Mm, I um, see. But I I do think that's interesting because if you're a publisher, like there's one thing, it's one thing to uh, to leverage a platform and to build an audience and to you know drive them towards your thing. But if you have to own your entire audience on there and and you really have trouble like offloading that audience to someplace else, it's really dangerous. And I think people have seen that with Facebook before. So um, yeah. Don't I think,
1: forget that Facebook owns Instagram.
0: Yeah. Yeah, all you Instagram influencers out there, save your money. <laughs> and, um, the money's good right now, but I, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm not in, the minority here and saying that that's uh, pretty much agreed upon and it's not going to be here for all that much longer.
1: Right. Um, So the last thing we have on deck today is Google's launch of FAQ and how to structure data markup, um, at least the instructions to do so. So there's some developer docs that are available on how to add these markups. Um, So how to rich snippets feature step-by-step instructions on completing a task And the FAQs are for single pages that answer multiple questions. So this shouldn't be confused with the QA markups, which is more for forum-styled sites like Reddit, which have many answers for one question. Um, But I know this has been pretty highly anticipated and seems like there are some mixed feelings in the publishing world about it. But what are your thoughts?
0: So, I mean, uh, it's really great for informational sites. Uh, I know we have a lot of those that listen to this show the the rich data for FAQs and how tos uh, I would say like that that covers a lot of evergreen informational sites out there that really at, to this point have maybe had to look at article markup or a couple other things that maybe weren't a perfect fit this is a good fit and uh, I'll quote Carolyn from ESPN who was on our SEO panel at, and uh, at, in New York at Google uh, you know she said Google's going to take your content anyways you might as well make sure that if they're going to take the content and put it at the top, that it's your content and not somebody else's. And that's that's partially kind of how I view it too is um, basically you can go along willingly or you can go get dragged kicking and screaming. And one of those is going to be a lot more pleasant experience than the other. And uh, so I think if you have the opportunity to to offer – uh, rich data to your content. It's not just Google either. There's other like uh social media platforms. There's a lot of emerging technologies that I think are looking to use uh that information. So schema is not Google's um Google's invention. It schema.org is a is a universally accepted um uh, I guess format for rich data and a lot of new platforms, technology, services are leveraging this. So even into the future, um, there may be opportunities for you to expose yourself to new audiences and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I would just say it's worth getting ahead of. So if you're if you're doing any kind of structured data markup, which you should probably be exploring if you're a publisher, you um, Yeah, uh, these are definitely ones to be on the front end of. If you start doing that today, you'll be ahead of 90% of the other publishers in your space that are trying to do this.
1: Right. Well, that's all I have for this week.
0: Yeah, so we want to thank everyone for listening to the show. Uh, Last week we had a guest on. I think it's universally accepted now that guests are popular on this show, just based on what we've seen. So we'll try to get some more guests for you. Uh, We've got some exciting ones potentially in the mix here um, but in the meantime, if you could leave us reviews on iTunes, those things are great. They've helped us kind of take it to the next level here recently. And, uh, that's great. Uh, uh, we don't want to have to make Shelby go back to school. And so I'm just kidding. The, this, this podcast is really just kind of a, uh, a labor of love on our, on our part. Um, it's become a lot of fun. And uh, we're happy to have all of you as listeners.
1: We're on the 80th episode now. Can wow. you believe it?
0: Wow. It's crazy. So thank you guys for, for joining us once again. And uh, we'll catch you next time on The Publisher Lab.